Our first reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the, of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. The internet is a plethora of wisdom and insight. Anything you need to know about life, God, purpose, meaning, you can find it there. I found such wisdom from none other than Justin Paris. Who is Justin Paris, you ask? Well, he's neither famous nor published, except he has written on his Facebook page. And he was a friend of mine and still is, hopefully after this as well. Yesterday on Facebook, he posted this this incredible insight about humanity and God and the nature of God. When he wrote, guys... I think I've just proven that God doesn't exist because if God is perfect and if we're made in God's image, then how does one explain that spot on one's back that always starts itching and it's impossible to reach it? (laughs) Profound. (laughs) If you're looking for wisdom and insight, into what it is to be made in the image of God. Many of us actually think physicality first, and then we jump into a couple of different ideas about it. In Genesis, we read that we are made in the image of God. This is fundamental to understanding ourselves, to understanding Christianity, to understanding what life is about. One significant aspect of being made in the image of God is that we are made like God relational beings. We are made to know and be known, to love and to be loved. And as we spend some time today and next week looking at being a church as an extended family, as part of our vision and values, it's helpful to go back to Eden, to what it was intended to be, to be creatures made in the image of God, and the relational capacity that we were intended for. So we're going to look at Genesis 1, at what God intended, look at how that was broken in the fall, and look at how Christ can restore it and call us to a new sort of relational connection and family. So first we get these incredibly rich verses in Genesis 1 when we read, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We see here the let us and let us make man in our image, the the 
The corporate, the collective is there from the beginning. And of course, Christians have long read back into that to say this is the Trinity being talked about. That God is talking about Father, Son, and Spirit saying, let us make man in our image collectively. God is a relational being, and he makes us to be in relationship. And we get that because the very next thing that we read is God saying, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, those distinctions of gender are important. Maleness and femaleness are more than just physicality. There's a spiritual depth going on there. That God creates diversity from the beginning. Father, Son, Spirit. From the, before the beginning. And so when he creates us to reflect him, he creates male and female. And that gender is distinctions is also part of just the way that we are all distinct. We're all distinct in terms of race or ethnicity and personality, extroverts and introverts in intellect and physicality, old, young, strong, weak. All these parts of who we are, all of our distinctiveness is a part of how God put his image and imprint on us. And we see that diversity, not just in the male and female, but when God says, so he told them, he blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, the intention was not Adam and Eve, you guys are together, now you're complete, everything's good. The intention, even from the beginning was, okay, now have kids and increase and fill the earth. To fully reflect God is to have an earth full of image bearers. Bigger than just a nuclear family. More and more and more people. In other words, from the very beginning, we get this. By ourselves, we are incomplete. We're not made to be alone. We're made for relationships. And that's what we get in Genesis 2. You see, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are the same story telling about the creation of humanity in particular. And in Hebrew storytelling, often you have a redundancy for rhetorical purposes. So in the second retelling of the creation, it's focusing on man and woman, and it says that God made us for relationships. We see this in verse 24 of chapter 2 when it says that therefore... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The purpose for that diversity from the beginning was to bring us together in unity. And the words that are used there, leave and hold fast or leave and cling, are covenantal terms. Throughout the Bible, those, those terms mean a commitment of promise and endurance. And most often we think about it in the marriage covenant but it was used in other ways of committing to one another. In the book of Ruth, Ruth is a widow, and she commits to her mother-in-law, who's also a widow, using these same terms. It says in Ruth, in the book of Ruth, that Ruth holds fast to Naomi and begs her, do not urge me to leave you, Naomi. Ruth is committing covenantally to her mother-in-law. We are made for this sort of covenantal, committed, and enduring relationship. And we get from the very beginning something that many of us have never experienced. 
a depth of relationship that's typified in this phrase, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, of course, the uh, you know, sixth grade boy in me laughs at that phrase, right? Naked, ha, 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 and unashamed. But of course, when the Bible's talking about their nakedness, it's not just their physicality. It's to be naked emotionally, mentally, spiritually, to be fully open and exposed to another person. Adam and Eve experienced the kind of trusting openness that most of us have never experienced. Because honestly, it's hard. Most of us guard ourselves emotionally and mentally. We have to. We've been hurt too many times by too many people. It's hard to trust. And that level of intimacy that they were experiencing, being completely open with one another, we tend to not think about it in terms of emotion and spirituality. We think about it purely physically. Today, when somebody's talking about intimacy, they usually mean sex. But if you go back to the beginning here, sex, physical openness, was not meant to be divorced from emotional, mental, and spiritual openness and oneness. Nowadays, sex outside of marriage is basically saying, I want you physically, but I don't want you mentally. Or maybe I'll take a little bit of your mental and emotional, but I don't want you spiritually. We are made to be known. And that sort of intimacy doesn't necessarily involve physicality. It can involve emotion and connection and spirituality. There's a phrase, or a word rather, in Hebrew that's not right here in our passage, but it's throughout Genesis and throughout the Bible. It's a word that is yada. Yada is a Hebrew word meaning no. And that word no, if any of you know your King James, is used of physical union of a husband and wife. Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a baby. But that same word yada is used of emotional and mental and spiritual connectedness throughout the Bible. We know God and are known by God. A brother knows his brother and is known by his brother. It's talking about a deep level of knowing and being known. And what we get from the beginning is Adam and Eve had this depth of knowing with each other, and not just with each other, they had it with God. They were naked and unashamed before each other, but also they were naked and unashamed and known by God. And as a result of knowing and experiencing God and his love completely, Adam and Eve were complete. They were whole. They lacked nothing. And then, of course, the fall happens, right? (laughs) In the fall, Adam and Eve reject God, and they choose for themselves. And what ends up happening? Everything breaks down. Instead of being open before God, they're hiding from God. Instead of being connected to one another, they're blaming one another. With sin comes guilt and shame and division. And now they're separated from one another, because they're separated from God. And that's our fallen human condition. You see, Adam and Eve lost the ability to know God fully in their sin, and as a result, they lost the ability to know each other fully. And then you also lose the ability to know yourself. 
You see, a, a, a big part of being made in the image of God is to be known by God and to know one another. When that is stolen away, our image bearing is marred. It's broken. And we see this in our culture today. We see it because we are still longing for that sense of being known and loved, but we seek it in all the wrong places. There's a a guy named Jason Silva who's a performance philosopher, at least that's the way he titles himself. He's hosted Brain Games on National Geographic Channel, and he's also put out a series of YouTube videos called Shots of Awe. One of them is called Love is a Religious Problem, where he describes that longing and desperation to be connected to God but that we seek in romance, that we seek in other people. But what we're really longing for is God. This guy is hitting on something that I think is pretty accurate. Matt, you want to go ahead and roll that? Disappointing answer to life's riddle, and that love is ultimately a religious problem. What we hope to get with love is what we failed to get with God. Once we dispensed with God, once Nietzsche told us that God is dead, we needed something else to believe in. And so now we we deify the other, you know. When in love, they're like the wind. They are our salvation. She becomes the sun. What we really hope to gain from love is completion. It's transcendence. It's immortality now. It's stepping up. So hear what he was describing. This guy who's just a secular philosopher looking at our longings for love and romance. I think he's right. Our pursuit of love is actually a spiritual quest, even though most of us don't realize it. We seek God, but we actually turn to romance. We seek heaven, but people in our culture turn to sex. We seek our identity and worth from the love and approval of others. Most of our human pursuits for relationship are actually deep down in trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We want to be known and loved, but we pursue it purely horizontally and sometimes only physically. What we're really longing for, what we're really after, is God. We're made to be known by God so that we can then know others the way we were made to know them. So where do we find this? What do we need to do? How can we enjoy God and relationships again? Well, I think first I'd like us to rethink relationships from what we see in the Bible. And second, we need to go back to the gospel and let it restore our ability to know God and know each other. First, look at the the Bible. In the Bible, there's a constellation of relationships that we tend to lack nowadays. So if you go to the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, people were not individuals, nor were they nuclear families. Do you know what they were? In the Old Testament, you generally had three generations of family. You had grandparents, parents, and kids all living together. And on top of that, you had extended family. You had your aunts and uncles and cousins all living within a few blocks of each other. And beyond that, you probably lived in the same village your entire life so that everyone around you was part of your wider extended family, a community of people who knew you and were there to take care of you. A person who was born in the Old Testament world was not born an individual. They were born into a place of being and connection. 
They had purpose and identity in that family. They also had safety. And they had intimacy. They had a lot of people who knew them. It was a place that babies were born and everyone took care of them. Somebody was sick and everybody showed up. Somebody celebrated and everybody celebrated with them. And somebody died and everybody was there to watch them die. There was flourishing and there was joy in this wider connection of community. Three generations of an extended family. Today, of course, we're missing that. Most of us don't have that experience of three generations or an extended family. We're a transient culture. We move all over the place. Most likely, you do have extended family, but they're everywhere. We're also individuals who make individual choices and aren't really in that depth of relationship that involved living in the same village your entire life. And most often we focus on our nuclear family, even when we do have a family. Even in the Christian church, rather than thinking about an extended family, we say mother, father, and kids, which of course cuts off people who don't have that in their life right now and makes that the end, as opposed to a wider network of family and friends that was a part of that Old Testament world. And so we're actually cut off from the sort of relational depth and breadth that was possible in that day and age. Now, I wouldn't want to go back to the Old Testament world because there was a lot of things wrong with it as well. It was patriarchal. There was ethnic inequality and there was social stratification. If you were not a man, you were lower If you were ethnically outside, you had no way in. If you were a woman born into a slave family, you had the least possible hope in life. So much of what we have today is, in a sense, a better thing, that sense of equality and belonging that's possible regardless of your background. But that's because of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came along, he took that extended family idea and he redrew it around himself, no longer drawn on the basis of blood or ethnicity or social status. Rather, what does Jesus say in Mark 3? He says, all who believe and follow him, all who believe and follow him are my family. It doesn't matter where you've come from, who you are, what your background holds, you can be in my family if you believe and follow me. And so think about the sorts of people that were part of Jesus' family. Two of the 12 disciples, the the 12 apostles, the chosen ones, were Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Zealots were people trying to overthrow the Roman government. Tax collectors were working in cahoots with the Roman government. These two enemies join the same family because they meet Jesus and are transformed. And not only that, you have Joseph of Arimathea who gives his his grave, his tomb to Jesus. He's a priest, high socially. He's in the highest level of social strata. He's amongst Jesus' disciples. You know who else is? Mary Magdalene. Mary who is a single woman and prostitute. A priest and a prostitute are transformed by Jesus and are able to be part of the same family. The gospel makes possible the sort of family that is not possible without it. Because in the gospel, Jesus confronts and undoes the effects of the fall. 
Think about what happens on the cross. Everything that we see happening with the fall is undone through Jesus. First, Jesus reconciles us to God because he takes the penalty for sin and guilt that was Adam and Eve's to bear. Jesus on the cross is driven from the presence of the Father. He's forsaken. Just like Adam and Eve hide themselves from God and ultimately are driven out of Eden, Jesus is driven out so that we could be brought near, so we can know and experience God and one day enter the renewed Eden. Jesus covers our nakedness with his righteousness. So we no longer have to hide from God because we know we're forgiven. And we no longer have to hide from each other because our relationship with God has been restored. In Christ, all our longings to be known and loved are fulfilled. So we no longer need to seek heaven in romantic relationships. We no longer need to turn to others to determine our worth. The gospel tells us that Jesus has restored us to personal and relational wholeness. And this means the gospel makes possible a new kind of family. And you see this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Christ, being in Christ creates equality. That means any of us can join this family. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in or what your background holds, you can come in. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. None of these matter. We are all one in Christ. Now, when you read that, it's not that those distinctions don't exist. A Jew was still a Jew. A Gentile was still a Gentile. Men were still men and women, women. But these distinctions no longer were determinative in Christ. They no longer determine your worth or whether you can belong or not. In Christ, there's no longer superiority or inferiority. All of us are equally sinners. All of us are equally loved. This means that in a body of Christ, there can be great diversity and yet deep unity. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the family of God as a body. It says that we are one body in Christ. And you've heard this. He says, you know, you, the body of Christ is made up of an eye and a hand and a mouth and a nose. One of you is a nose, one is an eye, one's a mouth, one's a foot. And you can't say, I, I don't need you. Like the hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. And the eye doesn't say to the mouth, I don't need you. And when one part of the body is hurting, the foot is hurting, the whole body is hurting, so are you in Christ. You are diverse. You're made up of different gifts and different backgrounds and different strengths and different weaknesses. And when one of you is weak, the whole body is weak. When one of you is suffering, the whole body suffers. And when one of you rejoices, the whole body rejoices. Because together you are one in Christ. This is the sort of diversity and unity it was imagined in Eden when God created us. You know, each of us, I would say, is a reflection of God. So much so that when you meet a person, as C.S. Lewis said, you're not meeting a mere mortal. 
You're meeting the sort of person that one day, if you saw them in glorification, you would, you would be deeply afraid of or want to worship. Every one of us reflects God. And yet when you put all of us together, we have the possibility of more fully reflecting God. It's almost like a picture of a mosaic. Each of us is an individual reflection of Christ. But by ourselves, we are an incomplete reflection. When we are all together, when we are built in unity together, in humility and love and grace, there's a possibility of seeing and experiencing Christ most fully. And this is why we've made this idea of being an extended family a core value of ours as a church. We talk about Christ Church Vienna being an extended family of believers in Jesus Christ. We describe it loosely as loving one another as an extended family, and that involves having fun, caring for one another, developing deeper relationships, being committed to one another. And hopefully through that process, experiencing a glimpse of eternity through our life together so that we have people of various ages and races and backgrounds sharing grace and forgiveness and joy and mercy with one another. If somehow over the course of the next several years, we could become the sort of extended family that is diverse and yet together, one body in Christ, loving one another, all ages, all backgrounds, and yet committed to one another in love and openness, we would be a counterculture, something that the world outside has not experienced and that most of us have not experienced. Dale Keene, Dale Keene is a professor and pastor he wrote a pretty profound book a few years ago called Sex in the Eye World. And in it, he talks about our need for relationship and that misguided need, but also about how God created us to experience relationship. He writes, God made us relational beings, and he constructed a relational network within which we can flourish. This relational network exists not merely to keep us occupied, but is a place for each of us to belong, to live, to love, to be loved from the day we are born until the day we die. Understanding our relational nature helps us comprehend who we are meant to be. Deep down, we yearn to know others and to know ourselves. A church in this transient culture, is uniquely poised to be that network, to be that place of relational connection where we understand ourselves more fully and we can finally know what it is to love and be loved on a broader level. So in that sense, a church as an extended family should be the sort of place where whether you are single or married, whether you are a kid or you're a couple who have no kids, whether you are old or young, or you have an intact, perfectly three-and-a-half-person nuclear family with a dog, that we all find family. It shouldn't be that a single person has to get married to be complete. In the community of believers in Christ, a family that loves and cares for one another 
should be that network and constellation of relationships that allows all of us to thrive. And so we should look at each other that way, that a place like this can be one of those unique places outside of work or school or your neighborhood where you have grandparents. And those of you who are older have teenagers. And those of you who have no kids have kids. And kids, you have extra uncles and aunts. And all of us have more brothers and sisters than we've ever had in the past. It can be a place that meets that need for belonging and being known and love and intimacy where we can find relational satisfaction and joy. Now, obviously, this is an ideal, this is a goal, but it is a direction. And so we aim that way. And there's a lot of things that get in the way. Transience in our culture, our individualistic nature, our selfishness. But none of it is too big for the gospel and the power of the Spirit to transform us individually and collectively. You know, I want us to be an extended family, and there's, there's two reasons in the end to do this. One is benevolent, and the other is selfish. The benevolent side is our culture is desperate for places to belong. Desperate to be loved and to be known. Seeking it in every possible warm body that they can find. If we could create the kind of community that looked like an extended family, this would be the sort of place that we would not only enjoy, but others around us would be desperate to be a part of, to finally have a place of being known and loved and cared for. And selfishly, it's because when you have these sorts of relationships, beyond just a husband and wife, into an extended family, into a village, into a community that cares for one another, when that is driven by the gospel of grace, of forgiveness, of humility, you're actually starting to get a picture of heaven. What would it have been like to be back at the Garden of Eden, to be completely naked and unashamed before God, before the other? Because of Christ, we can know that, in part, in part but we can. Let's pray. Lord, talking idealistically about being one in Christ and having a place like this church become an extended family seems unrealistic and daunting. But you have accomplished all through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we hand over our individual lives and our collective life to you and pray that by the power of your spirit, you would transform us and allow us to know the grace that comes from the God who has come to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, 
Joy, oh, tidings of comfort. 